G'day, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you now for the last time at the book of Esther. Do please have Esther chapter 9 open. We'll have a read through these last couple of chapters and think through what they mean and how they apply to us. Let's, uh, let's begin by praying. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, do please help us now to understand your word and please help us to delight in your salvation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the best celebration that you've ever had? Was it a, was it a wedding? Was it a birthday party? Christmas? Uh, the best celebration you've ever had? I've, I've had some nice celebrations in these last uh, few years. A couple of years ago, the, the church celebrated 20 years of my family's ministry here. That was, that was a really nice night. Good speeches, good food, lots of laughs, plenty of tears, lots of good memories. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Around about the same time, uh, I turned 50. Um, a friend very graciously allowed us to stay in his holiday house in Lavender Bay for three days. And we had three really excellent days to celebrate my 50th birthday. We caught ferries from Lavender Bay into the city. We ate gelato at um, Barangaroo and we went to a really nice restaurant in Circular Quay, had a beautiful steak. We, uh, we, the kids went to Luna Park. Um, I got a very cool leather jacket as, as a birthday present. Good times. It was, it was a nice celebration. Although I have to admit, some of the most, um, some of the most joyful celebrations of my life have, have, have happened in, in sport, whether watching sport or, or, or also playing sport. I vividly remember uh, one game. I was playing rugby uh, for, for my school we were, we were losing the game. There were only just seconds left. Uh, I remember my heart sinking. I really wanted to win. I thought, that's it, too late. We've, we've lost the game. But then, just as the final whistle was about to blow, one of our players, he got the ball and he ran the whole length of the field and scored a try. We had, we'd snatched victory out of the jaws of defeat. Our whole team, our whole team was jumping up and down with delight, hugging each other, um, crying, crying for joy. I still, still remember the feeling, still remember the feeling. It was a feeling of absolute elation. Have you ever had that kind of feeling? That feeling of elation, of unbridled joy joy, of delight. You, you have to celebrate, otherwise you feel like you will you'll, you'll burst with joy. The Jewish people have a, a celebration, a celebration of, of joy and, and rejoicing. It's called Purim, and it celebrates this story of Esther that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. They celebrate Purim, the Jewish people, every year. And let me tell you, it is an absolute um, everyone goes to synagogue. They all dress up in costumes. Um, this week I saw a, a superhero version of, of Esther being done, but they all dress up in costumes. Um, they, they read through the book of Esther. Whenever Haman's name is mentioned, everyone uh, boos and hisses and blows raspberries and honks horns and all that kind of stuff. Whenever Mordecai's name is mentioned, everyone cheers. They eat lots of food, they, they give gifts to each other, they give gifts to the poor as well, and um, they, they, they drink as well. 
In the Talmud, in Megillah 7b, if you're interested, uh, drinking and celebrating on Purim are prescribed. Uh, let me quote, they are prescribed until one can no longer tell the difference between Mordecai be blessed and Haman be cursed. Uh, my uncle reckons you can boil all of the Jewish festivals down to just three statements. Three statements. They tried to kill us. They failed. Let's eat. That's certainly true of the festival of Purim. It's a holiday that celebrates how God rescued the Jews from annihilation. Their enemies tried to beat them. They failed. It's a story of how victory was snatched from the jaws of defeat and, and the celebration Purim is a time of great rejoicing. And these last couple of chapters of uh, the book of Esther, they tell us how the festival of Purim came to be. Uh, Mordecai is the one who comes up with the idea in his capacity as second in command in the empire. He sends out letters to the Jewish people. He tells them, he tells them to celebrate their victory. They're to have a holiday to, to rejoice and be glad and to give gifts. Esther chapter 9 and verse 20. Have a look with me. Esther chapter 9 and verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. The Jews agree with Mordecai's idea. Happy to have another holiday. Uh, they take it on themselves to institute the holiday. I mean, they have to celebrate. It looked like they were finished. It looked like it was the end for them. It looked like they would all be killed. But Haman's evil scheme came back on his own head. He ended up dead. And against all the odds, the Jews had victory. Verse 23. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadathar, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme of Haman, that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews, should come back onto his own head, and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore these days were called Purim, from the word poor, that's the, the dice that Haman threw, because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. Queen Esther, she adds her royal imprimatur to the holiday, verse 29. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the, the second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. 
Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim and it was written down in the records. And then the book finishes by telling us just a little bit about uh, the career of Mordecai, like Joseph in the Egyptian Empire and Daniel in the Babylonian Empire. Mordecai works in the pagan empire of Persia for the good of God's people, chapter 10 and verse 1. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores and all his acts of power and might together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted. Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? You can read them one night, maybe if you can't sleep. Um, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Okay, um, can, can you see what's here in this passage? Mordecai and Esther and the Jewish people, they, they decide they'll have a holiday to celebrate their great victory. It looked like everything was lost, but the tables were turned. Victory was snatched out of the jaws of defeat. The Jews survived. Time to eat. It's party time. All right, well, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. As we've seen in this series on the book of Esther, uh, the name of God is never mentioned in the book. Very, very interesting. And yet, and yet, for all the fact that God is never mentioned, he is everywhere in this book. He is at work in the ordinary stuff of life. He is behind all of the coincidences. He's working, he's working his sovereign providence through the ordinary circumstances of life. And what's he doing? What's God doing? He's saving his people. Out of the jaws of defeat, he wins victory. God fulfills his promises and saves his people. And, you know, being a story about how God saves his people, this book of Esther it is a foreshadowing of Jesus. It foreshadows how God saved Jesus. And it foreshadows how God saves us through Jesus. You start to compare uh, the story of Esther with the story of Jesus, and there are a number of parallels. I mean, it seemed like Jesus was defeated. As he died on the cross, it seemed like all was lost. As he was buried, it seemed that there was, there was no hope for us or for Jesus himself. But, but on that third day, victory was snatched from the jaws of defeat. God kept his promises. He did not allow his Holy One to see decay. God raised Jesus to life, never to die again. Um, in one of the first Christian sermons ever preached, the Apostle Peter, he put it like this. And notice, notice the picture of um, reversal. In fulfillment of God's promises, God has turned defeat into victory. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Like with the Jews in the time of Esther, with Jesus, God has snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. The tables have been turned. God has saved his son and established him as, as king. And, and, and through Jesus, God has also saved us. And again, there are parallels with the story of Esther. In Jesus, we have an amazing, miraculous victory. We were facing sure defeat, sure defeat from sin and from death 
and from the devil. We, we were facing the judgment of God. We were facing ultimate and eternal doom. It, there was no way we could save ourselves. Our fate seemed sealed. It seemed hopeless. But through Jesus, God has turned the tables. We've been rescued, and now we look forward to a joyful and safe eternity. Like at the time of Esther, God has saved his people. He's given us victory out of the jaws of defeat. So, so how should we respond? How should we respond to this great victory? The Bible talks about lots of things that we should do. We should, we should repent and turn away from sin. We should offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice in view of his mercy. But, but there's one special thing that this passage in Esther reminds us of. How should we respond to the great victory that Jesus has won? Friends, we ought to be happy about it. We ought to, we ought to celebrate. We ought to be thankful. We should, we should rejoice. We should, we should sing, at least when the government allows us to. We should, we should smile, even if it's hidden away by a mask. Like with the Jews... And, and the celebration of Purim, we should be people who celebrate our victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a look on your outline there from, from Colossians chapter 3 and just see the picture of, of a life of gratitude and thankfulness and joy. The Apostle Paul writes, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all, with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What about from Philippians there? Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Now, last Sunday I had a bit of a go at people who sing songs over and over again and then imagine that the hypnotic feeling they experience is the presence of God. And I, I, don't, I don't resile from that criticism. I think that sort of teaching, it gives people a false assurance and it makes people think there's some way to encounter the presence of God outside of the work of Christ. It's a form of what theologians call mysticism. But, but the thing is, that's not really our problem. We don't have a problem, I don't think, with kind of manufactured displays of emotion or emotional manipulation or anything like that. And, and the thing that these kinds of churches, the, the thing that they get right is this. At least they're, at least they're trying to engage the emotions. We, we Presbyterians, we are not renowned for our emotional, joyful, celebratory lives of worship or, or worship services, are we? we? It's funny, you don't see very many references to Presbyterians in popular culture, but, but here's a very famous one and a very telling one. Have a look. When people think Presbyterian, I don't think words like joy, delight, elation come to mind, do they? What do people think when they think Presbyterian? I reckon it's about the only time anyone ever uses the word dour. 
when they're talking about dour Presbyterians. I remember a lady at my old church, her name was Glenn. Uh, Glenn had married a widower who was an elder of, of, of the church, a bloke called Colin. Uh, Colin is a very, um, a very formal and very traditional man. He plays the organ, and, and he, he, he insists that worship be um, solemn and, and serious and, and, and sincere and structured. One time I was running the evening service at my old church and, uh, well, I was a student at college and uh, one time he came to the evening service that I was overseeing and I'd say he wasn't, he wasn't happy with the job I was doing. He said that, uh, he said that the service was, it, it wasn't serious enough, it wasn't solemn enough, it, it didn't have a reverence for God. You should have heard how Glenn responded. She said to him, Oh, Cole, what nonsense. And, and then turning to me, she said, you should see him when he goes to the rugby. When his team wins, he is jumping up and down with joy. He's, he's shouting and he's yelling and he's weeping. Do you know, I keep on saying to him, I say, Cole, why do you get so emotional when your team wins at football and yet you think we should be all solemn and serious when we come together to celebrate the victory of Jesus? Surely, surely Jesus' victory is way more reason to get excited, way more reason to get emotional. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure that Colin has a deep and abiding faith. I know he does. I know he does. I've seen it. Uh, I've seen it demonstrated over and over again, not least, when, not least at the time when Glenn died. Colin has a faith that, uh, that greatly influences his life and his choices and his actions. I'm, I'm not questioning his faith in any way. There is something to what Glenn was saying, don't you reckon? And I suspect it's a criticism. It's a criticism that could be easily made of us. What do you think? Are we a bit, are we a bit dour? A bit, a bit light on joy? Does what we does what we believe about Jesus in our minds does it does it sometimes not quite make it to our emotions now, we focus a lot on teaching the bible accurately here um, again i don't resolve from that I spend my life doing it we, we want to understand god's word we want to think hard about applying it to, to to our lives but it's not enough to just be informed by god's word is it the, the gospel shouldn't just impact our heads and do you know it shouldn't just produce a a dutiful, grudging obedience either. The gospel should impact our hearts. It should inspire our, our passions and our, and our emotions. Friend, do you know that Jesus has died for you? Do, do, do you know that he's rescued you from hell and given you a place in heaven? Do you know that he's won this great victory for you. Great. That, that's, that's good. That's excellent. But let me ask you this. How does it make you feel? Have you ever felt delighted by what Jesus has done? Have you ever felt elated 
that he's died and risen for you. Have you ever felt like uh, bursting for joy at the victory that Jesus has won? Have you ever felt like you, you can't help but celebrate? Have you ever felt like your heart is, is, is just bursting with love for Jesus? Let's make you feel. What about when we meet together? To, to, to remember the great news of what Jesus has done, to celebrate his victory over sin and death for us. Do you think our celebrations might sometimes be a bit dry or, or, or distracted? Friends, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we should fudge it. I'm not saying, I'm not saying we should manufacture emotion. You're never going to see me allowing spooky music while someone's praying or anything like that. I'm not going to encourage us to sing, song, sing songs over and over again until we stir up some kind of hypnotic feeling. I, I'm not saying we should uh, I'm not saying we should p- pretend to be happy when we're actually feeling miserable. And I, I'm also I, I'm not wanting to judge people from external appearance either. I mean I can't see what's happening in, in, in anyone's heart. It, it, it's quite possible that someone um, standing there in church looking like they've just sucked a lemon, it, it's possible that actually in their heart they are delighting in Jesus. It's also quite possible that someone standing in church with their hands in the air um, and their eyes closed in ecstasy looking like they're in a state of total bliss, actually in their hearts, what they're trying to do, they're trying to impress the person next to them. I'm not saying we should, we should fudge it. I'm not saying we should manufacture it. And, and I'm, not, I'm not judging. But really, really. Can you genuinely believe that Jesus has rescued you from hell and feel nothing? Really? If you don't feel relief or or joy, or, or, or thankfulness, have you really grasped what Jesus has done? I, I know life has its ups and downs. I know, you know, when you've got little babies, it's busy to engage. I know when you're sick or in pain, it's difficult. I know there's plenty to be anxious about in life. I know there's plenty to be miserable about in life. I know that tragedies happen. I know it's not psychologically feasible to ask people to be joyful all the time. But, friends, for us Christians, we actually have a really, really good reason to rejoice, don't we? I mean, come on. Come on. At at least sometimes, surely. (laughs) We should be feeling joy and celebration. So how can we do it? How can we, how can we celebrate Jesus with, with genuine heartfelt joy? I, I don't think there's a, any magic formula. I mean, the answer is to read the Bible. The answer is to, to, to pray. The answer is to, to sing. The answer is to um, do this by yourself and with your family. And the answer is to gather together in church and, and pray and read the Bible and sing and serve each other. Um, but there's, there's no secret, there's no magic formula. But friends, I, I, I think what will help us is this. What will help us is if we are mindful about it. 
if we're intentional about it, if we, if we make a serious effort to focus our attention onto what Jesus has done. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he put it very nicely there in Colossians chapter 3, we read it before. He said to the Colossians, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. It's that word richly. It means not um, superficially. It means not distractedly. It means deeply. It is so easy in our busy lives to be distracted, to be superficial. It's it's easy to read the Bible but, but not really take anything in. I mean, I often find this happens to me. I do my through the Bible reading in a year, perhaps before I go to bed or something like that. And the whole way through, I read my word, my eyes cover over the words, but the whole way through I'm thinking about something else. I'm not engaging at all. Or I set myself time to pray and I spend the whole time distracted. It's the same when we come together for church. The reality is, if you've been rushing frantically around this morning after a late night last night and you show up just on time or, or, or late for church and you, you sit here with your screen off and your phone pinging messages or you're doing the ironing or something like that, or the reality is you're not giving yourself much chance to engage your heart you've got a better chance if you had an early night last night you've got a better chance if you took time this morning to to pray and to prepare your heart and you've got a better chance of engaging if you arrived early and just kind of relaxed and had a chat to some people and and you've got a better chance of engaging if you've deliberately put aside distractions that's going to give you a better chance to, to, to let the word of Christ dwell among you richly, to engage with what Jesus has done so that you can genuinely rejoice and celebrate. As I say, it's no magic formula and it's not about emotional manipulation. It's about letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly engaging deeply with the good news about Jesus, being deliberate, intentional about it. That, I reckon, is the key to better connecting with our emotions. That's what's going to help us to, to, to feel what we know, to, to experience what we believe. That's what's going to help us to, um, to rejoice in Jesus, to, to delight in Jesus, to, to love Jesus. Friends, whether we feel it or not, the reality is we Christians have plenty to celebrate. We have every reason to love Jesus. He so richly deserves, us, deserves it. We have every reason to delight in the magnificent rescue that God has won for us. That's the reality. And friends, there's no harm in feeling it, is there? It's no great burden to be joyful. It's no great burden to be happy about what Jesus has done, is it? So, What's stopping us? I say, let's just, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's, let's deliberately, consciously, mindfully, joyfully celebrate the victory of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you have saved us from sin and death and the devil and from certain eternal doom through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Lord, will you please help us to let this word of Christ dwell among us richly. Help us to think deeply, meditate on it. And Lord, will you work in us by your spirit so we don't just know it and don't just dutifully obey, but so that we love you, love your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and delight in him and be elated in what he's done. Help us to do this by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.